As we uh, come together to begin to look at defending the faith, uh, we have to realize some things that have gone on, and as we know, the, the world's getting worse. It's turned into a worse mess than any of us ever thought imaginable. But the Lord has saw fit to tarry, so we have some things to uh, deal with and face uh, uh, in this life. We are in the middle of what's called a crooked and perverted generation. And it's not just the United States, it's all over the world. And we come to find out, we ask ourselves why and where did, where did, how do we end up in this situation? And there's some things, some statistics, some studies have shown that have become uh, pretty clear. First of all, research shows that Christians are increasingly unfamiliar with four things. And these four things are really quite important. They don't know what they believe. If we put numbers with it, it's about 90% of the people that are in churches today, which we've just found out in the last couple of weeks is less than 50%. Less than half of this nation is attending a church, a synagogue, or a mosque uh, on their, their designated holy day. And so people don't know what they believe as a rule. Now, if they do know what they believe, if they have a statement of faith, they can't defend why they believe it. Well, why do you believe this? Well, grandma and grandpa taught me that. Or uh, it just seemed like something good. They have no basic uh, philosophical understanding of how things come together and, and why do Christians believe what they believe. And sad, this is, but true, this is the way a lot of Christians are. They don't know why they believe what they believe. The third thing is they're not sure what's important. They don't know what's important to believe. Quite frequently, people focus more on the overt. They focus on how things look. On, uh, they, they look at a church and go, well, it's got a lot of fellowship. It's got a lot of fun programs. It's got a lot of this and a lot of that. And, and you can wear this kind of clothes or that kind of clothes. And they don't care. Or they sing this type of hymns or this type of new music. And um, they, you know, they, they don't know what's important. What is really important uh, about uh, what we do? And why do we know it's important? Why, where does it come from? And then the fourth thing is that they can't defend their faith to other people. So that means that not only did most people not know what they believe, they, or they don't know why they believe it, they can't sort it out as to what's important and what's not important. And then when it comes down to it, how do they defend their faith to other people? This is the bulk of Christianity today. So this is the problems we're going to try to address. Addressing these problems is what is called apologetics. That means to be able to speak a word of, of truth. That's what we're looking for against the lies and the falsehood. So how do you come to know what these things are and how do you sort things out? We uh, set off to find out a long time ago and to, and to work with the uh, verse in 1 John 5.13. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you may know you have eternal life. Well, studying this and looking at this verse, how do you know, led to a lot of other things. So that's what developed this course over the course of uh, actually over a decade to put this together. So before we begin, because we're going to be learning some important spiritual truths. Uh, 
and why Christians think the way that they think, many of whom don't even realize why they have accepted the Christian faith. It's not part of their, of their uh, cognitive process, but what we're going to do is explore all the way from the very beginnings to the end, and we're going to see why we believe what we believe. To do this, we need to go before the throne of grace, because this is about enlightenment, the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It's not inspired. The Bible is inspired. But what we get as believers is enlightenment. We come to a better and deeper and fuller understanding of what the scriptures have to say. And how can we, how can we do that? How can we know even that they're any good? So let's go before the throne of grace. Let's ask that we, we be given the understanding that we need, the retention that we need in order to remember it uh, for a long time, and the wisdom. How do we go about using this? So to do that, we need God's help, and that's what it boils down to. So let's just start with a word of prayer. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we're so amazingly blessed. As we come in front of you tonight, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would be our real teacher. We pray that we'd be able to understand these principles and Father, we know that they are deep and they are profound, and yet they are basically very simple. So let us not be uh, scared of, of some of the information we're going to get because it's maybe cloaked in big words or something like that. But Father, let us just realize how simple you've really made things. We are exhorted by the Apostle Paul to not be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So, Father, I pray we would understand how simple your plan really is for us to understand and, and to seek to follow. So, Father, we pray you'll take this time, nourish our souls with it, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Now, what we are going to take a look at are the key questions of life. Now, these are found in the first chapter of the book, and we're going to take a look at the key questions first before the table of contents, and you'll see why in just a second. But why are we, why are we studying this? What are we trying to find out? Because sometimes people don't even ask the right questions. I, I asked a person one time who is a professed atheist, I said, uh, well, wh what answer do you give to the ultimate source of all things? How do you answer the question? He said, I don't ask the question. I thought, well, that's a convenient way to do things. But what are the key questions of life? Because people, we can, we can track philosophers back before the time of Christ, and they're all asking the same questions. So what questions are these that people are trying to answer? First of all, the key question is who or what's the ultimate cause of all things? See, for every effect, there's a cause. There's no effect that's there all by itself. It has to have a cause. That's one of the laws of thermodynamics. So the, uh, the law of thermodynamics, every cause has, has an equal and opposite effect. So what we see in the, in the heavens on earth, what we see in the flora and fauna, what we see is an effect. But where is the cause? What is the ultimate cause? When you reason back as far as you can reason, 
who, what has to be, who or what has to be the ultimate cause of all things. And we'll explore this reasonably. See, the Christian faith is not an existential leap of faith that you just, you're trying to make it real because you believe it. What the Christian faith is, or is taking reasonable steps of faith in order to try and find things that are understandable in a reason, it's spiritual common sense, I guess you could call it. Who or what's the ultimate cause of all things? Why is there a need for truth? And some people say, well, there, are, there is no truth. And that's a, obviously an absolute statement. Is, it tr is that true? When someone says there are no absolutes, you say, are you absolutely sure about that? Well, uh, is there truth? See, the, the converse of that statement, there is truth. That's, that's a statement of truth. But to say there are no absolutes or there's no absolute truth... That statement is inherently contradictory. Therefore, that statement cannot be true. So the other one has to be. There has to be an absolute truth. And why do we need truth? Now, it seems like a real simple thing for us to figure out that we need to know what's true and what's not true. Uh, some people like to live in a fantasy land, the fantasy world, but that's, that's going to fail them as, uh, as they try to uh, do that. So we're going to ask the question, who or what has always existed? Because either God has to have existed or matter has to have existed. There are no other options. Aristotle tried to put the two together and say they're both co-eternal. But that is, is never borne out. And even Aristotle couldn't put those two uh, concepts together. So who or what has always existed? And which existed first? Because if matter existed, then really God's a figment of our imagination. And that's what a lot of people actually think right now. That if there were no God, man would have to make one. And a lot of people have tried to make one all of their life. But which one existed first? How about uh, Revelation? Now, if you go with the, the reasonable conclusion that God is the one who made all things... And we'll go through the different proofs, what are called proofs of the existence of God. Then we would ask if, if he made all things, then would he reveal himself? Well, we know that he did, but it makes sense that he would, wouldn't it? If he made a thinking being who could communicate with him, wouldn't he reveal himself to that thinking, creating being that he made? It's only a, it's a reasonable step of faith. To be able to do that. And then how about inspiration? See we, we hold this book up. And right now the, the Bible has been the most attacked book in the history of the world. There's no question about it. It has been. It's made up of 66 books. And people will say, ah, oh, there's 66 different books by, by so many different authors. And therefore they, they can't be in agreement. Well, they actually are in agreement. And it's a, it's a book, it's been said that uh, man wouldn't write if he could, and that uh, uh, man couldn't write if he'd try. Because it requires inspiration. Now it makes sense that if the Creator wanted to reveal Himself, He would inspire a work. 
he would inspire ways to reveal himself. We know from Romans chapter 1 that the uh, heavens declare the glory of God. So we have a natural revelation. But then we have, starting with Moses, a written revelation of what God wanted us to know about himself. Now, should we expect this revelation to be without error? If God is perfect, then he is. And then he made his creation. And even though the creation has fallen, couldn't God reveal himself perfectly to his creation? You know, if this almighty God who could speak and bring the heavens into existence, wouldn't he reveal himself to his creation? Well, he decided to, and wouldn't it be without error? Wouldn't the original revelation, inspired and written in the original language, be perfect and without error? It's just reasonable to think. It's interesting, people say, well, all the manuscripts are messed up and all this, this, that, and the other, and that's just because they don't know the facts and they don't know the truth. That's part of what we're going to explore in this study is what's called canonicity. How did the canon come together? Well, in study inspiration, how was the Bible inspired? And uh, should we, is it without error? There are like 304,590 words, if I remember right, in the first five books of the Bible. And you know all the manuscripts? You know how many variants there are? In those, there, in, in those there's only six letters in that 304,000 that there's any question about. The rest of them, they've, they've got it nailed down. And there's simply a lot of times the difference between a yod that's about like this versus a wow that's about like that. And if it was all done by hand, so if the copyist got a little bit sloppy, you could see where maybe you wouldn't know if it was a yod or a wow that, that he was talking about there. But should we expect this revelation to be without error? And if we do, then what should we pursue? What should a Christian pursue in this life? How should we go about living this life? How then shall we live? And the, the book devotes a, a lot of time to exploring how then should we live? What should we focus on? What should be part of the driving force in who we are and what we want to do? Then the seventh chapter is expectations. What kind of expectations? What are realistic expectations for life? Sometimes people think, well, gosh, if I just say the right words to God... I can play him like a vending machine. And let me tell you, that, that don't work. A lot of times people have walked away from the faith because they think they've got the right formula to get God to do what, um, what uh, they want God to do. And he doesn't do it, and they get upset with him. Some get so upset that they depart and we, we don't see him again uh, in Christianity. What are realistic expectations for life? You know, nobody likes to hear realistic expectations. You're going to suffer. That's part of this life. But why? Why do we suffer? Why is there suffering to undergo in this world? Why are some of the things going on in this world that are so uh, devastatingly uh, bad? As we look at the key questions to life, also we're going to look at changes. Will there be changes in a person's life? When they become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, will there be changes in this life? It's a good question to ask, and, and uh, obviously there will be changes. 
we come to find out if we believe the Bible that there's only one constant in all the universe and that's God himself. All the rest of it is changing. And we're part of that change. So we're either going to change for the better or for the worse. And which one it is depends on whether or not we accept some things about who God is and what he has revealed. Then we're going to look at the results. What are going to be the results of these changes? Uh, it can be changes for good, once again. can end up in eternal rewards. Or it can be changes for for, for the wrong reasons, it can lead to divine discipline and even the sin unto death. That's what can happen. And then we're going to ask about hope. Does true hope exist? You know, people use the word hope in the English today. They use, use it as wishful thinking, and that's not the biblical word for hope. The biblical word for hope is about confident expectations. What can you... What is... What is your confident expectations? What things can you truly hope for? So does true hope exist? These are key questions of life that, that we're going to dare to ask and we're going to try to answer all located in within the same book. So that's the direction that, that we're headed with the key questions. Now, <clears throat> by chapter, and you can go back to the table of contents if you want to, get familiar with it. Uh, take the book, and uh, with the book, hopefully you got a chart that looks like this, and if you can read that from the back row, I can't read it from here, but anyway, if it's, uh, read it, I, can, I actually can now with my, my new glasses. Anyway, table of contents by chapter, first of all is questions of life, things that we just ask, various questions that we just ask about life itself, and then... How did all things begin? How did they come into existence? Who is the ultimate cause of all things? We're going to explore the options, and we're going to explore the reasonable uh, answers that go, go into that. So how did all things begin? And then, would the Creator communicate with His creation? That's the title of the third chapter. Now we know that He did. And just kind of a preview of, of things to come. He uh, spoke directly to Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He spoke directly to some people. I don't believe he spoke directly to everybody all the time because none of, none of that is recorded in the scripture anywhere. But would he communicate with his creation? Well, we know that he did. And we will explore how he went about doing that. How did he communicate with his creation? And then, what did he communicate with his creation? Now, <clears throat> it, we know and we accept the Bible as the Bible. But I remember some good friends a long time ago, and, and this, this little lady, she was a sweet lady. She was a good Baptist, and she knew her Bible, and she knew it very well, and she had a cousin or something that came to visit for Thanksgiving one time, and she got into a Bible discussion with, with him, and she kept pointing to the Bible and reading the verses, and, you know, she had that all, all down real well. And he said, well, that's, that's your Bible. It's not my Bible. I'm a Zoroastrian. Well, that kind of put a crimp in it. 
So why is the Bible the Bible? See, these are questions. How many doctrinal statements you know where people say, we believe the Bible to be totally and completely inspired in the original language? Well, uh, most all of them say that. The church that you go to, the doctrinal statement they'll have, we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God totally and completely. That's what they'll say. But in practice, it's not what they believe. And <clears throat> they, they start throwing it aside or treating it as a second-class book or just another piece of literature, and uh, that's a mistake. Why is it a mistake? And we're going to explore why that is. Yet why, do you, why do you trust the Bible as the Bible? Why should you trust the Bible as the Bible? Because a big part of what's going on and what has, what has harmed the church is the Bible has come under attack. And it's come under attack from every direction imaginable. It's come under attack from the movie industry, from the media, come under attack from world religions, from cults. It's come under attack from all different kinds of directions. So why should you trust the Bible as the Bible? Because if you talk to people and you hold up the Bible, they're going to laugh at you, some of them. And they're going to tell you that that might be your book, but that's not my book. They might tell you, well, the Bible is the Bible if you make it your Bible. Well, that's not quite right, is it? The Bible is the Bible whether you buy it or not. It's the inspired word of Why do you know that and how can you go about arguing that? That's what, what the, this book is about. How should the Revelation be read? Now, if you were um, uh, going to read a book, if it said fiction on the outside of it, hopefully you'd read it as a fiction book. Okay? If you're going to read an autobiography where somebody wrote about themselves, uh, a lot of it might be fiction because they want to sound better than they really were. But you would start off trying to read it as a nonfiction book, as a historical book. So how would you go about reading this? Well, you know, if the creator wanted to communicate with his creation, how would he do that? It seems to me very simply. It also seems that it would be very reasonably and very literal. Because we are at best kids before the creator. All of us, no matter how smart we are, we are just a bunch of kids. And I start trying to think, well, how could the creator have a relationship with someone dumb as a post like me? <laughs> you know, how, could, how, could this, how could this happen? And you think, that's because he wanted to. How would he go about doing it? Would he start off talking in glowing allegorical terms? Would he, would he start trying to get you to read hidden meanings into things? That's called allegory. Or would he be straightforward? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Now, should we read it literally <laughs> or allegorically? Who created the heavens and the earth? Well, God did. Okay. That's what it says in the Bible. But why is the Bible the Bible? See, these are questions we're going to try to put together and answer. How would you read the Bible? Would you read that there was literally a Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 and that from there people were dispersed all over the earth? Would you read that literally or allegorically? How would you read the flood of Noah? Would you read that literally? Because it says it covered up the whole earth. 
literally, or would you read it allegorically? Well, maybe it didn't. How did some people read it allegorically to the point that they don't believe there really was a flood. It was just the cares and the trials and the pressures of life that toss us here and there in the wind and the waves. And uh, it really didn't happen. Noah was a mythological figure and his family were all mythological people. And therefore, why pay any attention to the Bible? Because the world today attacks the historicity, especially of Genesis 1 through 11, and that's how they seek to discredit the scripture. Do we want to read it literally? I believe that's the way God inspired it. Uh, if you read Genesis 1, it's just as literal as you can write it. I mentioned before that I, I've read several commentaries on it, uh, and one of them said, this is so literally written that it has to be allegorical. <laughs> and I thought, are you a professor at a seminary, or what's going on here? Because the, you cannot write it in the Hebrew any more literal than it's written. It's clear what it is. So how do we take that? Are we willing? We, we're not going to be able to defend to people who want to find something else to believe. You can offer them a reasonable argument, a reasonable thing to consider. And that's what we can do because it's between them and God and the Holy Spirit whether or not they're ever going to buy it. How should the revelation be read? We believe literally, recognizing there are figures of speech. You know, our parents were real good at being literal. And they said, go take the garbage out. That was, had a literal meaning. There was no figurative meanings to that that were ever designed into it. But a little bit later, after you grow up a little bit, you learn to, the figures of speech, like all the ones I have are from Oklahoma. But you learn all the figures of speech, like that dog won't hunt, and you're going, huh? But you start figuring out what they really mean. So the figures of speech come in as people grow up a little more and, and God gets to, gets to help them expand their, uh, gets to, God helps them expand their vocabulary. So how should the revelation be read? Now why are we doing this? Remember 1 John 5.13 all the way through. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that, that you might know. You have eternal life. Not that you might wish you have eternal life. And not that maybe you can keep eternal life. But that you might know you have eternal life. That's 1 John 5.13. That's, that's the verse. So how can you know? Because if you know you have eternal life, you have an assurance of salvation. So how can you know that's true? Well... You know, God has to be God. God has to have revealed himself. God put that in the scripture. And if all those are trustworthy, then those verses are trustworthy. So exploring the truth, the assurance of salvation. We're going to be looking at those. And, and in doing that, we're going to take a look at, at uh, the proof. The biblical proof that is that is uh, that we are assured of our salvation, and in the course of that, we're going to deal with a lot of the verses that people use to object to that. But why should we do that? You know, when when salvation is a free gift, and when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He died in your place. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. You're saved forevermore. 
but do you believe it? People will start trying to add things to it, but that's simply what the book says. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any should boast. But we are his workmanship, and we're made for good works. So the works we do have no use in paying for the penalty for sin. But what they do have use for is in battle with the power of sin in our life. Because a believer faces the power of sin. Now the counterfeits are going to be there. Because the world has got them. Uh, the various uh, cults have them. They've all got counterfeits. So what are the counterfeits? That's part of the, of the book. And then uh, the eighth chapter is embracing the 50 blessings of salvation. Now, <clears throat> we put 50 in there. That's what we found. Of course, uh, Lewisbury Schaefer had 36. I'm not saying we're better. But people have kept expanding that over the course of time. I know Pastor now it's up to 100. And so we, we consolidated them all together, and 50 was a, was a good number. And what we find, they're blessings of salvation. We were teaching a, a group of, of people in another country one time, and, and they were actually Baptists who didn't believe in the security of the believer. And, and, there was a, and we thought, what? And so we asked them, you know, we got to thinking, what do we do? And what we decided to do is we started going through these 50 things you receive at salvation, and it was real good. They were Baptists. We were getting amen and everything else. And then we asked, what? What will God take away? And they all stopped dead in their tracks for a bit. Well, so would somebody read Romans eleven twenty nine? And of course, they had a Bible and they opened it up, and it says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Huh. So if these things are gifts, they're not revocable. That's important. Now, not all of them immediately embrace that concept, but your life is spent not working to gain or keep salvation, but working to thank God for your salvation. And it's a whole different mindset and a whole different attitude. Embracing these blessings. You've been reconciled to God. That means you're no longer at war with Him because you were once an enemy. And you're no longer an enemy. Now you're, you're a friend. Whenever you start saying the father was propitiated and that's a blessing. He was satisfied. His righteousness was taken care of. That's why you could be reconciled to God. You've been redeemed. And you start looking at all these things that God has given to us at the moment of faith in Christ. And then you start growing in your appreciation of the grace of God. You embrace those 50 things. Now, of course, a lot of the, the arguments here is going to be, uh, uh, well, if you're a believer, can you do this? And I've heard the whole spectrum of, of things for if, oh, if anybody commits this sin, they really weren't a believer. Well, then I'd just point him to David, figure out, <laughs> figure out a big one he didn't commit. But uh, uh, hmm, did David lose his salvation? I don't think David lost his salvation if he's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. It doesn't. Does it make any sense? 
What is the evidence for the eternal security of the believer? And we have, I think, like 14 lines of evidence that go with this, all the way from the Greek tenses used to describe our salvation, uh, one of which is an argument from silence from the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was uh, quite interesting. Because in chapter 1, they argued over who baptized who. And in chapter 2, they, they didn't understand spiritual things require spiritual discernment. In chapter 3, they messed up eternal rewards. Chapter 4, they rejected the authority established by God. Chapter 5, they permitted flagrant immorality in the church. Chapter 6, they were suing each other in secular law courts. Chapter 7... They were, uh, they, they'd messed up marriage. Chapter 8, they messed up their liberty. They were misusing it and causing a brother to stumble. Chapter 9, they messed up giving. Chapter 10, they messed up their spiritual heritage and didn't learn anything from their wilderness wanderings of their ancestors in, in the desert. Chapter 11, they turned the Lord's table into a drunken party. Chapter 12, they were arguing over spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, they obviously didn't have any love, which is chapter 13. Chapter 14, oh, they messed up church government. They messed up decorum. You talk about messing up, the Corinthians could mess up. Chapter 15, to top it all off, they messed up the doctrine of the resurrection. Some of them in there didn't even believe there was a resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Chapter 16... We find out they'd run their pastor Apollos off and he wouldn't go back. Because Paul was trying to get him to go back. And he said, no, I'm not going to go back. What a bunch of unbelievers. Wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says to the saints who are at Corinth. Later on in that chapter, he assures them that they have not lost their salvation from the penalty for sin. But what they were doing was acting like carnal Christians. They were not winning any battles with the power of sin. So it's quite an argument to say that the letter to the Corinthians is a letter to believers who absolutely did about everything that you, that you could do, and yet they still are called saints. That, to me, is fascinating. The evidence for the security of the believer... And then how to change according to the will of God and, and divine discipline. Because we are called to change. We are called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may know what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world, as it says, but be transformed. That's Romans, the first, two chap the first uh, verses in chapter 12. We should change. Now, should I be your fruit inspector or you be mine? No, it seems like I read that, that there's, a, there's one judge and we're not him. Yeah, we are to live for an audience of one. Change according to the will of God and divine discipline. Because people that hear that you are eternally secure from that moment on think, well, it's just easy believism or it's a license to sin. Now, the church I grew up in believed you could lose your salvation uh, for just about anything. And that's why people frequently walk the aisles, because they believe you could lose your salvation for about anything. And then, but what's the answer to that? Is it just 
a license to sin like the, like the accusation. Now there's a thing called divine discipline. Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He does not want his children to be unruly. And he has got a way to, to discipline each and every one of us when we get out of line, whether it be for a mental attitude sin, a sin of the tongue, or an overt sin. He has a way to do it. So it's not like it's a free pass, as some have accused. There is change according to the will of God. We see that there is also service. Now what good is doing anything for the Lord if it's not going to get you saved? Because there's another thing that he gives to us, which is called eternal rewards. We see different kinds described in Scripture, crowns being one of them. You can get a crown for persevering to the end. You can get a, a crown for uh, loving your neighbor, passing a big, the big test of your life. You can get a crown for those various things. Precious stone, gold, silver, and precious stones from 1 Corinthians 3. And that gold, silver, and precious stones are for doing what? Good works. We were created for good works, which have been made for us before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. So when you follow them... God remembers it. You passages like Hebrews 6.10, that God is not so unjust as to forget the good that you have done in ministering to the saints. It would say that if he forgot, it, he would be unjust. And the writer of Hebrews said, that's not the case at all. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, he's not so unjust as to forget the good that you have done. That means, you know, the stuff that, you forgot, which if you're like me, that was last week. You forgot all the good stuff that you did last week. God didn't forget. He knows when you were gracious to somebody that, that didn't deserve it. He knows when you were kind. He know, knew, knows when you spoke a good word because you just sent somebody had a need for it. He knows all those things. And he won't forget it. So you've got gold, silver, precious stones. You have... The works that are no good, the wood, hay, and stubble, they all get, get burned up. But there is, there is eternal rewards, and we serve to get those. And I personally think that we serve to get those uh, because uh, we all start off as babies in the Christian life, and then we turn into toddlers. And toddlers still keep getting in one mess after another. But then they grow up. When they're fully grown, they're called adolescents. Uh, at least ask an adolescent that. And that's the reply you'll get. I think, um, the, I think what he did was, <laughs> okay, you find out that you're safe forevermore. It's easy to take a side trip. And God's saying, no, I got a lot more stuff for you. You think you got heaven figured out? You just follow what I say by faith, and I'm going to show you things you cannot remotely imagine. Ephesians chapter 3 ends up with the, the things that he's able to bless us eternally beyond anything we can think or imagine. Transformation. Chapter 12 and 13 about, is about transformation. We're going to look first at some personal, practical applications that's a christian way of life me as an individual 
What are some of the things that, that the scriptures has called me to participate in and to do? Some personal practical applications. How should I think? How should I speak? What should I do? How should I, how should I carry these things out? And then we're going to look at transformation in the sense of corporate practical applications. And this has to do with how do we function within a church, within a body of believers, to other members of the body of Christ. That's, that's part of the transformation. So the, the chapter C are going to be connected directly with those ten questions that we asked to begin with, some of the key questions of life. Now, <clears throat> the chart that you have in front of you, Please uh, get that out, if you would. Wouldn't show up very well on this uh, overhead, but you can follow it along with the, with the chart. And the question is, God versus matter. Okay, that's the who or what. Who or what has been here forevermore? Now, <clears throat> if we decide that God has been here forevermore, then would he reveal himself to us or not? We know that he did reveal himself to us. So it makes sense that we ought to ask, what is it? You know, if you figure out there's a God and he's the ultimate cause of all things, then it just makes sense. What did he want me to know? Okay? Revelation. Now, where there is a positive, there is a, a counter to it. Satan is real good at taking things and twisting them around. Because if we don't accept divine revelation, all we've got is human observation. That means that we can look around empirically and try and figure out how things work. And see, some of the great believers, some of the great scientists in history were God-fearing believers. And they set out to find out how God did things. Not to try and rule God out and figure out a way around him. Now that whole element of science got hijacked in the 17 and 1800s. And what happened was is that they started moving in a secular, humanist, atheistic direction. But observation is all that we have. Human observation. And at best, uh, we don't see everything. How much do we really see even in our own neighborhood? Even, even busybodies don't see everything in their own neighborhood. It's impossible to do it. So by that scope, we're never able to look at the big picture that God lets us in on. We have to stop and look at the minute details and then try to manufacture a puzzle that we don't know what it looks like. This observation... It's just going to lead to confusion. That's all it's going to do. How does this fit together? How does this fit together? We can see some cycles. Human beings have seen water cycles and things like that since it, it, we know after the flood for sure. They, there wasn't a lot of water cycle prior to the flood. But confusion. How does it all fit together? Nothing seems to work. Why does this animal eat this animal? Why does this animal not eat any other animals but eats each, each grass? Try to, trying to figure all this thing out leaves us uh, lost, to say the least. Now, if you accept God's revelation, then 
With that, inspiration's just an easy step. Total, complete inspiration of the scripture. Whenever he reveals himself, he reveals himself perfectly. Now see how important is that? It gives us confidence. Whenever we open the book and open the word of God and we study it, and, and there's some things that you can see better in the original languages, but most translations are pretty good at getting the big picture out of things. But then you have confidence. These things are written that you may know you have eternal life, who believe in the, the name of the Son of God. Yeah, you can have confidence in that, that statement. Um, you can have confidence in John 3.16. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What a promise that comes with that. You can have confidence in it, but if you don't believe the Bible is the Bible, or God reveals himself, or even if there is a God, what confidence could you possibly have. Now the opposite of that is just perception. You're just able to try and figure it out on your own without any, without any real guidance. Now we say that parents should do that and teachers should do that and indeed they, they should. But if, if those parents and teachers are not accepting God is God and his word is his word, all they've got is perception. And that will lead to doubt. Is it true or not? Has anybody noticed that since we were kids, most of us were pretty old. But when I was a kid, the earth was only 5 billion years old. And today it's 15 billion years old. And somehow in the last 50 years, it's got 10 billion years older. And that's what the scientists tell me. Why? Because there's perception is all they've got. They don't have any divine standards to go by. So doubt, well, what are they going to find out if things tarry? Now, from inspiration, this is so critically important. If you believe the Bible's inspired word of God, you should read it wanting to know the author's will. Okay? What do you, how do you read a textbook? Wanting to know what the guy that wrote it had to say. That's how you read anything. You want to know what is the author trying to communicate to you. Sadly, that's not the way a lot of people use the Bible anymore. They want to say, they want to open it up and say, well, what does this mean to you? And they pass it around for a hodgepodge of, of ideas. What you have to have is the right interpretation and then you can look for the applications that go along with that. But you have to find out what did the author want. Now, <clears throat> the author's will, if I know the author's will, and it's divinely inspired of God, that means I'm approaching the Bible with humility. A lot of professors now, a lot of people working for higher degrees, they're told to take a premise and prove it do what they need to do. The tendency is to take the verses that, that back up their point and leave out the verses that don't. Well, that's not really the way to approach it. That's an arrogant reading in trying to find out and prove a point you want to make. Rather than, what has the author got to say? See, approaching the Bible, we shouldn't care what he says in the sense of trying to read into it 
We might not understand it. We might not agree with it. Because there's some of the things in there that, that just seem to, to go against uh, uh, go against what we were taught or whatever. But what we should have is a humility to say, what do you want me to know? And then, that's the right approach. Because isn't he the King of kings and Lord of lords who inspired, uh, who inspired the scripture, who became flesh literally and dwelt among us, the living, walking truth. You want to find the truth, it's found first in a person, then in a principle. And you have to, have to realize that. But humility is the approach to it rather than the opposite, which is self-will. Isn't that of Satan? Wasn't that part of his problem to begin with, Isaiah 14, the I wills, the five I wills? It's all about self-will, what I want, what I want to find. And no, God, I didn't like that you put that part in there about fill in the blank. I keep running into people that say, well, I read that in the Bible and that's why I stopped believing it. Well, I'm sorry that you did. But you're wasting a big part of your life when you do that. Self-will. And then the end result of that with self-will is arrogance. And we know that certain things are just no good. Arrogance is no good. And that is self-will. And if we approach the, the scripture or approach life without the scripture, we're approaching it in an arrogant way. Now the author's will, if we do that, we can find truth, right? We can find the truth. We can know what the truth is. Didn't Jesus in John 8 say, If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We've taken that last part of that verse and carved it in concrete or marble on some of our, our judicial systems. And it's sad that anymore a lot of them don't even seem to seek the truth. And if they do, they just want to twist it to their own ends. The truth. And then... <clears throat> With that, you have assurance. Does God speak truth? We know that to be one of his attributes called veracity. That's what he speaks is truth. So if he speaks truth and he says, you believe in my son, I'll give you eternal life forevermore. That's assurance, isn't it? How many verses do we really need to believe we're eternally sure, so secure? We just need John 3.16. We need to believe it. That's what we need. But God's so gracious. He said, I know you're not going to do that, most of you. He said, I love it whenever your faith is that pure and simple as the faith of a child. That's what I love. But a lot of times, it's going to take more evidence. So what did he do? He just kept piling on the evidence for us. The truth. Uh, and see, if you don't find the truth, what do you end up with? Deception. That's what you end up with every time. See, if you follow that, that top line, revelation leads to inspiration, leads to studying the, the inspiration from the author's will, and as a result, you're going to find truth. If you move on that other line, below that, you just have observation. You have your own perception as to how you perceive certain data and facts. Then you approach life and everything else with self-will, but it's actually deceived. It's a deception by the world that, it, that leads you to believe something other than the truth. 
And what happens when you're deceived? Do you know anybody now angry? Don't everybody hold up their hand at once. Fear, guilt, because what happens if we're living in our own little world, so to speak, we're never going to be happy. Why? Because we've been deceived. And we might not know exactly why, but the result comes out of anger. Mad at everything. Have you turned on the news and seen people mad at everything lately? It's not hard to do. Fear? Huh. People are afraid of their own shadows anymore, it seems. And then guilt. Oh, I must not be any good. Nobody likes me. Why does nobody like me? Because you're not likable. You don't want to really tell them that. That might upset them. And then you go, but I'm not either. But I know one that loves me in spite of the fact I'm not always likable. There are ways to do it if you don't get blindsided and stay calm in the process. You'll have a great ministry to a lot of people. Now, <clears throat> this is the, the chart. This is the flow of the whole book. We're going to fill the blanks in here. This is just an overview. What's going to happen? Your life's going to change. That's what's going to happen. It's going to change for the better, and you're going to have a life of service to other people. Now, the counterpart of that, once again, is the you're going to try to change the world. Now, can you change the world? <laughs> the world can be changed one person at a time, but it's through a changed life that changes the world. The Lord took a dozen people and changed the world, is what he did with a great commission. But if you're out, and that's all you're trying to do is change the world, save the planet, I mean, you can fill in the blanks with a lot of that, then what's going to happen trying to change the world? You're going to be frustrated because the world's just not going to change to suit you. That's, people are going to stay mad because the anger comes about as a result of frustration, which comes about from unfulfilled expectations. And if they keep trying to force things on people and people won't let it be forced on them, they just get madder and madder. And what are we going to see in these days in which we live? More and more anger. A changed life, we want that, don't we? Because then we can be transformed. See, we start off born spiritually dead with a sin nature. When we believe in Christ, we become spiritually alive, but we still have a sin nature. But the more you understand what is pleasing to God and try to walk in that, the more your life changes. It's not that you've set up a thing, I, I, you know... Maybe some of you have tried like I have. and Well, I'm going to work on patience this week and try to become more patient. Don't pick that one because <laughs> that, that one will get you every time. But I'm going to master patience and I'm going to do, I'm going to do joy. And the next week I'm going to work on joy. And in nine weeks I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit and I'm going to have it all down pat and I put it all in this nice little box that I've got and I'm going to be fully uh, filled with the Holy Spirit transform nope <clears throat> you know when you're transformed when you love God and other people when you love God when you don't understand him when you love other people when they're unlovable when you start thinking about their well-being and their care and the fact that you, you 
You want to see them with you in heaven. It'll, they're not going to have their sin nature and you're not going to have yours. You're going to get along just fine. But to learn to see things through the lens God sees them because he sent his son to pay for everybody on a cross. So he wants everybody to go to heaven. Now, if you're going to try to change the world, uh, hmm, you're going to be conformed to the world because you're going to figure out how to get along. They often call it coping mechanisms. There are divine spiritual coping mechanisms without question, but not the way they work anymore in the psychological world. Now you're going to be conformed to the world. Instead of battling the power of sin, you're going to embrace the power of sin. That's what they're teaching now in psychology. Yeah, you're a big sinner. Eh, just live with it and be happy. Not quite the way it works. Being conformed to the world <coughs> is going to lead to discontent. You're never going to be happy. The world can't make you happy. It doesn't have the ability and being transformed, guess what? Then you got to hope it's real. It's not just wishful thinking. It is indeed a confident expectation. And with this hope comes peace. You know, reaching that point in the middle of this chaos that is going on in the world, you can have the peace that passes all understanding. You know, you're already in Him. That's what we forget. Christ who is our peace. What happens when you believe in him? You enter into him. Who is also on the inside? The Holy Spirit. What did he bring with him? His peace. But see, you've got to fight through a lot of stuff to ever fully realize that. The other option is just worldly pursuits. A frantic search for happiness and desperation sets in. And nothing, absolutely nothing satisfies at all. Now what we're going to do within the pages of this book is mention is fill in the blanks. We're going to provide more data and details. But take this chart, try to learn it, try to follow its flow, look at the lines, the lines follow each other. Realize too, you see the up-down arrows on the chart? Believers can think like unbelievers. Believers can think like unbelievers. We can go back to that bottom line, if you will. We can start living in that bottom line when we get our eyes off the Lord. And what do we need to do? Go right back to the top line. We start back with God's always been here. He has revealed himself. He has done so perfectly. I want to know and do the author's will. And therefore, I can learn it with with assurance. So that is a summary of where we're going with more information to follow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, once again for your amazing grace, your matchless love. Thank you for your marvelous word. Father, I thank you for the, the fact that we've been able to, to look into your word and to see it, see the big picture that it lays out for us. I pray that is as time goes by, we'll be able to learn more and fill in the blanks. Father, not just so we'll know it, but so that we will be able to use it to witness, use it as a tool in order to seek to snatch people out of the fire and bring more into, into your service. Father, lead us and guide us, we ask in Jesus' amazing name. Amen.